Good morning, everybody. Raise your voices with us. We're going to sing some worship songs. Wesley's going to lead. Above the mountain of your sin, 
us, Heavenly Father, we just lift you up in this place today. Uh, we just ask that your name be proclaimed, um, and we thank you for just the love that you show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hello, everyone. So good to see half of your faces. Uh, glad that you are here this morning. Hey, before we uh, jump into the word, first of all, if you are visiting, my name is Josh. We're really glad that you're here. Um, but there's just a few announcements. Uh, just a reminder, last week was the first week we started the three services, uh, which are 9, 1030, and noon. Uh, and this is the only service that is offering uh, a place for kiddos uh, to go uh, downstairs. There's a preschool room open if, if you need it. Uh, main bathroom, as you know, is um, on the main floor, uh, right, right through these double doors to the right. Uh, and also, you know, we are a church that is uh, functions like all churches by the generosity of the community itself. And uh, so there is offering boxes in the back uh, on your way out. Um, and even, even more exciting is that this is the first time in eight years of Door of Hope that I'm actually able to say goodbye to every person that comes. Uh, so as you leave, I kind of force myself upon all of you, uh, gold tooth and all. So I'm really glad to be able to actually connect with me. I've, I actually have met a lot of people that have been coming to Door of Hope for a long time. Uh, it's the one, one of the, the few benefits of having the arbitrary number of 50. Uh, so, um, uh, so yeah, really, really grateful for that. Um, but we're going to continue today uh, in our new series that we're doing on uh, the disciplines of grace. And the reason I call it the disciplines of grace is because spiritual disciplines can very quickly uh, spiral into sort of a self-focused navel-gazing that I think is actually quite detrimental to the Christian faith. Uh, and we want to be cautious uh, to not move ourselves toward uh, any kind of ladder theology. Uh, we're doing these things to earn God's favor, these things to improve oneself. This isn't, this isn't uh, you know, some sort of self-help uh, class and, and, and it's not um, a, a, a regurgitating of, of mystics who often were very off theologically. Uh, we want this to be grounded in the gospel of Jesus, which means that it's not a ladder theology, it's a cross theology. And when we think about the disciplines, uh, often, you know, we think of, we think of silence, solitude, uh, we think of fasting, uh, but there are, there are disciplines uh, that are connected to the gospel uh, that actually are the central disciplines by which all the others flow. And we considered really the, the central one last week, which is the discipline of daily surrender to the kingship of Jesus, the recognition that I am not the master of my universe, uh, that I have been purchased at a price and belong to another, and that that surrender is a daily surrender. And that's why Paul says, why are you now trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? So this week, we're going to talk about what it means to practice confession, uh, because confession is directly connected to surrender. Uh, in its most simple form, it's just the word help. 
Uh, and so I want to just begin with a quote from Robert Farrar Capone from his sometimes maddening but always interesting and most of the time brilliant uh, uh, overview of the parables called Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment. And he says this about confession. He says, confession is not the admission of a mistake, which thank God in our better nature we have finally recognized and corrected. Rather, it is the admission that we are dead in our sins, that we have no power of ourselves either to save ourselves or to convince anyone else that we are worth saving. It is the recognition that our whole life is finally and forever out of our hands and that if we ever live again, our life will be entirely the gift of some gracious other. That is a powerful quote. I mean, worth meditating on. This is the thing. I've often said this about Door of Hope, and this comes really through the influence of my friends at Mockingbird, Paul Zoll, and his sons. But the fact is, is that the church needs to continue to push into this idea of being a place that really is a hospital for the sick. It needs to push into this ideology uh, that actually is the momentum behind the success of AA. I've often said that AA actually functions more like a true church. Uh, than the church often functions. And AA's success, people who find victory over their alcoholism, actually comes through their confession. And the first step is what? I can't fix myself. Now, that may seem like a defeatist mentality or you're playing the victim, but it's not the case. The, the, the key to the success over the addiction is actually recognizing that you can't overcome the addiction without the verbal communication to others, to a safe group where we can confess our struggles together so that in that confession we can find the power to actually move beyond those struggles. It moves you out of a interior self-focused motivation into an other-oriented way of living, which is a very gospel way of living. It is not good that man be alone. Uh, but what's powerful about it is, is it, it puts everyone on the same playing field. You are there in that circle because you, like everyone else in that circle, needs help. And that is how the church should function. We are Christians because we are sinners who recognize that we can't save ourselves. That's why we have a savior, because we're not capable of saving ourselves. So confession is an essential and really a starting point uh, as followers of Jesus. And it's something that needs to be daily practiced. Uh, it may be true that we should be slow to speak but it is also true that we should be quick to confess, quick to forgive, and quick to share Jesus. And all of those activities happen with the mouth. <laughs> Isn't it interesting when we actually think about the fact that sin leaves the body, salvation enters the soul, and Jesus is introduced by the mouth. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. If you confess your sins to one another, Jesus is faithful to forgive us of our sins. For the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. This constant call to be a confessing people is a discipline. It's a real discipline. Because we often tend to be the least vulnerable, transparent people in the world. The most guarded people I have met have been Christians. And I think it's because we buy into the false premise that what the world needs to see is us pretending to live the ideal that we can't achieve. And that is deeply problematic. So what I want us to do is to actually spend our time now in 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10, and we're going to look at confession and its connection to honesty, or what I call radical vulnerability. Confession and its, connect its connection to forgiveness, not only the forgiveness that we receive, but the forgiveness that we actually then become conduits of. And then confession and its connection to humility, um, or even, even better yet, it, confession and its connection to a humility that leads to real community. Uh, so beginning with confession and honesty, look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. It says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Notice even the word, the, the, the usage in this translation of practicing the truth, to practice the truth. I mean, isn't this is what we're talking about, the, the practices of grace. Um, now, here's the thing. When you read this, on a surface level, when we think of God is light, you immediately tend to apply uh, and this is just how our minds work because we live in a world that is defined by law. And remember, gospel and law are, grace and law are often at odds with one another. We're not saved by the law. We're saved by grace. Jesus' total fulfillment of the law. Law kind of rules over our world. And what we do when we read a, a phrase like God is light is we immediately apply our moral grid to that word, to that phrase. And so it's God is light means that God doesn't do these things. And because God doesn't do these things, this is what it means to be a Christian, to not do these things. But this is a problematic reading of, of this, this sentence because to walk in the light is not to walk in moral perfection. To walk in the light is to walk in a radical vulnerability, to be honest about who we are and what this world is and how desperately we need help. <laughs> that is what it means to walk in the light. Uh, we are a world of sinners. And what we need to be as a world of sinners, because we need to understand we need to understand first and foremost the, the basic principle. As Chesterton said, the greatest argument for Christianity is sin. The greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. Why? 
because sin is a problem for everyone, including Christians. And so the idea of this, of this, this problem that has plagued our ability to save ourselves, that sin is so, it's so invasive that the entire human race exists under judgment. That something must be done about our guilt, our collective guilt, as well as our individual guilt. I like what Paul Zoll says. He says that grace assumes a bottomless need on the part of every one of us. What we need the most is a substitute. Isn't this what it says about Jesus? That he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the way that I like to define sin is not the little things that we do wrong. It's not a measurement of how bad we are. It's a measurement of how good we are not. That the issue with sin is that it is a rebellion against God's rule. It is a rejection of his grace. The power of sin, as Frederick Buechner puts it, is centrifugal. It tends to push everything out toward the periphery until only the core is left. Eventually, even the core will break apart until nothing is left. He goes on to say that sin is whatever we do or do not do that pushes God and others away from the center. It's it's the things that we do that creates and widens the gap between us and them and even the gap within ourselves. And so he says that sin leaves us with a vertical disconnect, a horizontal disconnect, as well as an inward disconnect. Original sin just simply means that we originate out of a sinful world which taints everything at the word go. This is why I like to use Paul, uh, Paul Zoll's language of low anthropology. We need to understand uh, a low anthropology. And has that not been on display in the current age in which we live? I mean, never have I lost so much faith in human beings as I have in the last seven months, including myself. It, it is nothing has affirmed my strong conviction that this world is in desperate need of a savior. Uh, Sin is universal. It is everybody's problem. Remember it says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. Uh, For those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, for all have sinned, Romans 3, and fall short of the glory of God that the entire world is under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, That we need to understand that sin, John will go on to say, anyone who says that they do not sin lies. They make, they're they're saying God is a liar. Uh, And this is a problem. It's universal, but it's also total. And it's total, uh, when I say it's total, it's it's what reformers use the language of total depravity. Uh, Total depravity doesn't mean that everything you do is bad. It means that everything you do has been infiltrated by this problem. So even the good that we do is still ultimately mixture. This is why we need to walk in the light. This is why it is so hard to be a Christian in the time of Corona. Uh, When, because there are places in the world that have just been living for ever under oppressive government systems and have learned how to be communities in spite of that oppression, we have never been forced to, to live as Christian community apart from one another. So we don't know how to do it. 
So we're feeling the pain of trying to figure out. I mean, in China, the church explodes with millions and millions of believers through house churches. We just don't know how to do that. And we're such a privatized people who like our space in our individual space. And we like to relegate church to its appropriate box in our schedule that we are just at a loss. And then we can't figure out why we're so depressed because the world is telling us that we can be happy if we just, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps when in actuality we desperately, if it's not good for man to be alone, words like social distance is really problematic. Uh, you know, if, if scripture declares and kiss everyone with a holy kiss, which I'm gonna do to all of you on your way out today, but I have had this light caught, no, I'm just joking. Um, but that's, what's, what's, what is Paul getting at? That's a cultural thing, but it's just saying we need connection. We long for intimacy. Uh, we need friendship. We need to be together. We need outward honesty. Uh, we, need to be, we need to be vulnerable. We're not meant to live in our heads. We're not meant to live in isolation from one another. It's, it's total in that sin has infiltrated every arena of our existence in such a way that we need the community to keep us. Uh, the more we're together, that mixture dissipates, I believe, as the power of the Spirit is working in the community as a whole. This is why when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, don't you read that as an individualistic statement? But it's a letter to a church. It's not a letter to a person, it's a letter to a church, that the church is to work out its salvation with fear and trembling, that we work that out together. But we tend to individualize every aspect of our Christian faith. And it's like, no, that's a verse directly to me. You can't work out your salvation by yourself. You need the others. When Jesus sent them out, he sent them out two by two. There's, the fact is, is that we're not meant to be alone. And so I think that this, this infiltration of every arena of life means that everything we do, even in the power of the Spirit, is mixture, which is why we need one another. And then original sin, not only is it universal, not only is it total, but it, it, it means that sin is binding. And, and what I mean by that is it's, like what, it's what I like to refer to as the unfree will. It's not that there is no free will, it's just that we are so bound by sin. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. That means that every day we are drawn back into the slavery of the sin nature that is still at play in our lives. The power of the spirit brings victory over that, but not total victory, not until we receive the new bodies and the new heaven and new earth will we experience that kind of total freedom. And what that means then is that the will is more bound than we like to admit. We love to think that we're free, but we're actually, we are actually more limited, uh, that we can't save ourselves. This is what it means. I'm not interested in the kind of freedom that you exercise in your day-to-day -day choices on whether you're gonna get a, get, go to Stumptown or secretly go to Starbucks. Like those kinds of choices I don't think are actually that meaningful. I'm talking about in our ability to reach God, that vertical climb is not a possibility. The gulf is too great. We are absolutely limited in our ability to save ourselves. We can't do it. We're not just limited, we're actually bound. 
And this is why we need God to enter into our life in a, in a, in a very real and tangible way. A theology of everyday life depends on the unfree will. If the will is free, then we do not need someone to save us. We may need a helper, but we don't need a savior. Walking in the light is not moral living then. It's that recognition that I am broken, that I need to be honest about my own brokenness. Confession as a discipline is getting away from the victim culture that we live in right now, where everything screams uh, offense, where everybody else is to blame but ourselves, where we can point the finger at everyone and say, this is the reason that we're this way, or this is the reason. Isn't it even interesting, like oppressed people rise up against their oppressors, and all they do is become oppressors in return, because this is the nature of human existence. When we turn everything into victimization, when we can actually topple a statue of Abraham Lincoln and say, he's the reason that all the problems exist. We can see that we live in an upside down world. And the problem is, is that we live in a politically correct, in a politically correct city that loves to use words like triggered and microaggressions and cancel culture. And I'm just like, I wanna cancel culture. I wanna, I'm gonna start a new movement called cancel culture. Uh, because what we are, we're not participating in the right or the left. We're participating in the kingdom of God that draws down the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that happens not through us spiritually dominating over people. No, it happens through us being honest about our own brokenness. And that when I see my brothers and sisters do something crazy and bring destruction to a building or beat up someone, that's my problem. And my responsibility is not to say they're the problem. My responsibility is to say they are sinners in need of a savior just like me. How do we function in a graciousness toward a broken humanity? Remember, we're not worse than God already knows that we are. And the worst things you see out there is in you. And sin is collective. And we all bear responsibility and this is why we need a savior. And what the church has to be is honest about its own brokenness. That is attractive. You know why I, I think pastors fall again and again and again? Is because they begin to live duplicitous lives where they are simply not willing to be honest before their people that life is really hard and leading a church is darn near impossible. And this is why we need one another. I mean, the uh, pressures that we feel, I mean, I know I was sharing the other night with, with my buddy Matt who goes here, has been helping me on the house and just someone sent me a direct message that left the church four years ago. And it's like, and it was like this scathing social media post about their read on my character written in a poem. And it just said, I wrote this about you. I wish I didn't have to come to this. I'm like, but it, it didn't. You could have just texted me or sent me an email and I would be happy to get coffee, but I'm glad you're writing poetry. And I just said, hey, I am happy to meet with you. I love you. And it was just like I had to check that spirit, that response, like, hey, something's hurt here. 
and a hurt wasn't dealt with, and this is someone who was in the community for a long time, it's my responsibility to not take offense, but to move toward that and to be honest and to be vulnerable and to own what I can own. Uh, not own more than I can own, but own what I can own. How did I contribute to this person's pain? And I think that this is an important posture that we have to continually take, and it's hard. Because at first I'm like, oh, I want to react. And then I'm like, no, I probably did hurt this person. Because I'm a person like you who has this problem called sin, and this is why we have to walk in the light. Confession is directly connected to an honest stance before God and before one another. That's why Paul says, examine yourselves. Because Paul is willing to say, remember this saying, Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. If he could say he was the chief of sinners at the end of his life, a very victorious life, what he has recognized, the closer he got to Jesus, the more desperately he saw he needed him. He saw the brokenness in, in himself. As he came into the light, light does what? It exposes the darkness and what's in the darkness. And we don't often like to know what's in the darkness. Confession and forgiveness. This is the beautiful outcome of coming into the light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I think one of the great misunderstandings of the gospel is that forgiveness is an end rather than a means to an end. That Often we want Jesus to forgive us because we cannot live any longer with our guilt. So everything we're doing is kind of built on this guilt-shame sort of relationship. But we have forgotten that Jesus has already forgiven us. <laughs> and he, because he is not content to live without us. That the forgiveness that he gives is the outcome of the relationship that is restored. That the forgiveness of the world, we're calling people to say yes to the forgiveness that is already theirs. The impossible possibility is the, is the possibility of rejecting that which is already done for them. But here's the rub. If we desire a clear, con we desire a clear conscience, but Jesus desires us. And it's hard for us to admit that we despise anything that threatens our autonomy. So we come to Jesus with our guilt, but we aren't willing to come to him with ourselves. And that's why I began last week with surrender. It's like, Lord, get rid of this guilt. I don't like this guilt. You know, I looked at this website and I, should have looked, I shouldn't have looked at it. I did this thing. I was dishonest with my spouse. I was, I, you know, I was lazy with my time. And it's like, but don't take my freedom away. Forgive me, just take the shame, but don't take me. But see, it's when we give ourselves to Jesus that the forgiving king becomes the ruling factor in our lives and the forgiveness becomes a part of not only what we experience but then what we can become, a conduit of forgiveness. I, I always say that the more we understand how much we're forgiven, the easier it becomes to forgive. And that is a discipline, a daily training of ourselves to confess. Why do we confess sins that have already been forgiven? Well, first of all, 
you're not confessing all your sins because you don't even know, you're possib- you probably are sinning right now. You're probably judging me right where you- everybody judges me. Everybody judges, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that the, isn't blame shifting? The universe really does swarm with scapegoats. I mean, what's the first statement in the, in the garden? Adam just being the strong leader that he was. It's the woman that you gave me. That's the, that's the statement that's made. She blames the snake, and Adam blames her. I'm like, what the, what? Oh, nothing new under the sun. No, this is what we do. We pray for forgiveness. We, when we ask Jesus to forgive us, we're not trying to remember everything that we did wrong, because there's no way to remember that. This is where I would part ways with a Catholic understanding of forgiveness, that sins aren't aren't forgiven until they're, brought, they're confessed to the priest. I fully believe in the confession to people, to other people. I think there's power in not only speaking it out to God, but confessing to one another because it keeps us honest before one another and God. But it also, it shows, it, it allows us to live out the forgiveness that is actually ours. We don't confess to be forgiven. We are forgiven, therefore we confess. And what it does is it keeps us humbled because we're willing to admit that in spite of the fact that I'm forgiven, I still do things that need forgiveness, which is I'm so grateful that the work of Christ on the cross transcends time itself, that it reaches forward and backwards, upward and downward. That's the Apostles' Creed. He descended into the hell that we created for ourselves so that we could be raised up. This is the forgiveness that comes out of a community that practices confession. You see, guilt often is what is espoused from the the pulpit. How do we make people feel bad enough to make a change? Guilt will never lead people to any sort of long-term change. Only love motivates discipline. Discipline has to flow out of the right devotion. I make changes in my life the changes that stick, they flow out of affections. I will suffer through playing guitar and the, the, the sores that it created on my fingers because I love music. I, I will not suffer running in hopes of losing some weight because I actually hate running because I'm a rhinoceros on the pavement. I literally feel like I leave footprints on the pavement. Uh, So there's there's realities. We don't stick with things we're not passionate about. We need to know that we are loved. We need to experience the love of God because that's what motivates the change, the transformation. Forgiveness is coming to a God who has already forgiven us because he's crazy about us. And he wants us to confess our sins to him because it frees us from the burden of unconfessed brokenness in our lives that is kind of sits in us like a, it, it, it becomes almost like a septic tank of the soul. We need to release that. Sin leaves the body through the mouth. Confession is catharsis. Septic tank of the soul. That just came to me. I'm going to patent that one. Uh, guilt is a blind alley. We're in the business of forgiveness. We are sinners offering sinners the grace we ourselves need every day. Finally, confession and humility. In 1 John chapter 1, 9 through 10, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, 
There's no denial here. We don't blame. We're not blaming anyone. We're not creating scapegoats. We make him a liar. Isn't that interesting? We're going to make God a liar by saying, that's not, no, I didn't do anything wrong. I had a conversation with a family member who was going through a, a really painful divorce. And he said, I did nothing wrong. And I'm like, that's the most wrong thing you've ever said in your life. And he's like, you can't say that to me. And I'm like, I can say that to anybody and everybody because you can't be married and not do something wrong. Like, that's an impossibility. Two people tied together have to be close enough together to do each other good or bad, and you will inevitably do both. This is why we enter into a covenant to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves in this mess called life. Uh, in which we learn how to confess the ways that we wrong one another so that we can actually do good to one another. If you can't admit that you've ever done anything wrong, then you literally are the most blind human being who's ever lived. He hung up on me. But then was willing to admit it later. This is important. We can't help someone that can't confess that they need help. AA does not work for someone that isn't willing to say, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> there, there is no overcoming if there isn't a, a willingness to say, I actually need help. Confession is always connected to humility. It takes humility to recognize our brokenness. I think that this is something that I, I long to see more in our leaders in the world is a humility. But we shouldn't be looking to the world to be a display of humility. What we should be looking to is the church. And then nothing more sad than when you see a lack of humility in leadership. And I always pray, Lord, pride is, is the essence of all sin. Uh, and we, we, it's funny, we won't tolerate stealing in pulpits. We won't tolerate adultery in pulpits, but we will totally tolerate pride. And it, we're told that pride is an abomination to the Lord. And we, we, often, we often actually even idolize pride. That we see pride as confidence, and confidence is essential for getting ahead in the world, right? Humility is not weakness. Humility is strength under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's the recognition that the good parts of me as well as the bad parts of me still belongs to him. So when I fail, I can bring it to him. When I succeed, I still have to bring it to him. And when I succeed, I actually have to give him credit for it. And when I fail, I have to let him carry it. And I think that this is the, even the, the, the reality of how we function as a community, is our willingness to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I need help. We're so fearful of what people would think if they really knew what was going on in our heads. I know what's going on in your head. It's crazy. It's a dark, dark web, darker than the actual web, what's going on in your head and mine. I'm like, if I told you everything that I'm thinking, well, I kind of do, because I have a tendency to verbally process everything. Matt can attest to that. Uh, but here's the thing, we, 
we, we are broken. Our minds are fixated on so many things that are against God's heart. But that's why we need one another is we need to just say, man, you pray for me. I pray for my thought life. Pray for this. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling in my marriage. We, we, we have such a hard time being honest. But that's what's attractive to the world. The world isn't looking for us to be perfect. The world is looking for an authentic expression of a love that actually can make a difference. And that love for us is not a nebulous idea. It's not an ideology that we are presenting to the world. We are presenting to the world the living Christ who said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Are we being a reflection of Jesus? Because the one who loved us so much that he gave his life, that we might put our faith in him and find eternal life. He wants to make his appeal through you. He wants to scream through your life, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. And we need to be a reflection of what that rest looks like and it flows out of being a confessing people. Confession is about radical honesty radical vulnerability. Confession is about receiving and giving forgiveness. Confession is about a humble posture that recognizes I am broken and therefore I will believe the best about every person I meet because I know what Jesus can do with a sinner that is surrendered. He loves you. On your worst day, he's crazy about you. Surrender your life to him. Confess your need for him. For it says, whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel of grace. Thank you so much for its ability to bring transformation to our lives. We pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would draw the lost to yourself and that you would do that through us as your community. Lord, we confess how broken we are. We confess how desperately we need you. We confess that often we forget to put you at the center. Lord, we confess that often we are reluctant to surrender, and yet it's what keeps us in our misery. Lord, confession is catharsis, for it allows us to release the burden of existence by allowing you to be responsible for us in a way that that burden now is carried uh, and allows us to move more freely, more lightly. Lord, it allows us to enter into community in such a way where there's real vulnerability, where it's safe to be broken, where it's possible to find healing. And I pray that Door of Hope would be a place where people continue to find healing where they continue to find their savior and their need for you. And so Jesus, we say together as a church, you are Lord. So let's say Jesus is Lord together. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Love you guys so much. So glad that you're here today. Would y'all stand with us for these last few songs?
Bye. 
I'd like to just let you guys know that after this last song, there will be prayer available up front. Um, there will be some staff and elders up front available to pray with you. Um, and yeah, that will be open. As you exit, please exit out this door, not the one you came in on, so that we can uh, keep that area open for people coming in. And if any of you could volunteer to help us clean up the seats so we can transition to the next service, that would be great. You can talk to Chelsea in the back and she can give you supplies. All right, raise your voices with me for this last song. All those who see the throne of grace find that throne in every place if we live a life of prayer our God is present everywhere in our sickness or our
presence in our lives, for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for giving us your spirit, giving us a life that we're able to live for you. We thank you for the ability to confess our sins and to find forgiveness in you. Thank you for this community. We love you very much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great Sunday. <laughs>